What did you eat for breakfast? Same thing every morning. Oatmeal, peanut butter, and bananas all mixed in a bunch. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 119. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. In this episode, I talked to Austin Zhang, a Texas native that moved to New York City to go to college and immerse himself in the jazz scene. We hear about Austin's history in music with guitar, then switching to saxophone and being named number one at the Texas All-State Jazz Competition, and subsequently being invited to play gigs in Deep Ellum, all while still in high school. We also hear about the entrepreneurial drive that most likely stemmed from seeing his parents' property investments, an experience which led him to create a production company that offers a digital venue helping local jazz artists make a living from paid streaming concerts and help expose New York jazz to the world. Austin's story is extremely inspiring in terms of musical drive and ability, but also successfully pairing that with his business sense and entrepreneurial spirit. I look forward to what Austin will accomplish in the future. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Austin Zhang, who is a New York-based uh, saxophonist, entrepreneur, tech nerd, etc. So how are you doing? And thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Simon. I'm doing really well. Awesome. So uh, just to start us off, you were actually, were you born in Texas? Yeah. So 
yeah, pretty close to where I'm, I am now. And you, you went the other way. Mm-hmm. I, wa- I moved down here to get away from the snow and you moved from Texas to New York and inadvertently got the snow. So how's that been? Uh, I mean, this winter is pretty brutal. Um, not as brutal as Texas, though. So you ended up getting it. Um, remind me again where you're based. You're- I'm, I'm just, just west of Fort Worth. Okay. West of Fort Worth. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, as of recording this uh, episode last week was Snowmageddon for, <laughs> for, for Dallas-Fort Worth, and it was pretty brutal. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm used to it to a point. I just didn't really want to experience it again so, yeah the the infrastructure is not though <laughs> no down there it, it's just not it's just not suited for this but anyway so if you wouldn't mind uh let us know what you do and uh what it is that you're uh you know you the, that you do in music right so let's see here i was a small town kid from texas from from plano mm-hmm. texas a suburb of dallas and uh, you know, I was your average person. I was doing sports and whatever. And then I got somehow roped into, I was playing sax, classical saxophone in the band. Uh, and somehow I ended up doing really well in the world of jazz. It wasn't anything my family ever did uh, or encouraged me to do or had any knowledge about. But somehow that happened and I ended up doing really well and excelling and going through all these beautiful camps and educational experiences through high school. I ended up studying jazz saxophone here at the Manhattan School of Music, uh, which where I've been for the past three and a half years. And since then, I've gotten more into a couple different areas where I've now been expo- exploring a lot more electronic music. I play the, the Ak- Akai Iwi 5000, which is an electronic okay. wind instrument. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've been dealing with a lot of MIDI and, yeah, kind of very... 80s fusion influence type of music, jazz and swing, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, all those influences are still there. Uh, and now I'm a business owner who presents a lot of uh, artists through my home studio. Yeah, and I, I read in your bio that you used to, uh, you know, talking of entrepreneurship, you, you used to drop ship um, saxophones in class on eBay. Yeah. So, this how'd you what... get hooked up with that? Um. I just always had that kind of bone in me where I was always looking to make money, even though I really didn't need to, you know, like I was, I was Mm. fed and, and sheltered and loved and had a supporting family. But, um, for some reason I always felt like I needed to make a buck. Uh, and given my knowledge of saxophone mouthpieces and I was a gearhead at the same time too. talk. Yeah. We're back in high school. Now I don't really care so much, but um, definitely back then I was browsing like the forums. I was reading up on every new mouthpiece. So I had kind of like a specific knowledge, if you will, about like mm-hmm. what pieces, what saxophones are what and what they're worth. And then I would scour eBay or forums really just for fun. And I would want to buy them, but I knew I didn't <laughs> need them. So right. the way I started justifying it to myself was like, hey, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to mess around with it see what it's like but then i'm gonna flip it for a higher price but so it started off as as flipping but then sometimes i would drop ship it not totally legal but i was like not well it's probably legal but not totally ethical uh i was like 14 or 15 and i would like see a a killer deal like on one one on one place and then i would list it as if it were my own (laughs) 
<laughs> like on another forum or something. And then I would just, I would just, I would get the sale at the higher price, give the shipping yep. information to the other seller. <laughs> and I would, yep. I would, this is the type of thing I did for fun. Like, like you said, during class, really weird now looking back on it, like people don't do that, you know, I, but it wasn't, it wasn't weird for me at the time. It was just, I don't know, somehow that happened. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, but I think that at a young age, if you, if you have the, the mindset to do that, then, then it really is going to serve you well in the future. You know, so I honestly, I don't know what, what was your experience for, you know, entrepreneurship and, and that kind of thing in high school mm. was, was there any programs or lessons that you had? Cause I know like when I was in my, even in my twenties, entrepreneurship wasn't even a thing in my vocabulary. I didn't even, you know, I didn't find out about it until later on. Right. So it was always around. I never considered myself business minded. To me, it was always just looking to make a buck. Right. Right. O always trying to hustle for students or flipping something or like o o always that type of mindset, trying to get a gig. But now looking back and comparing my, my background with other more varied backgrounds of people I've gotten to meet, I now realize that it was always around me. My mom is a big real estate investor. Her and my father, um, they own a lot of properties. And it was very normal for me at like age 10 to go like out into Laredo or like Bonham, Texas to go look at some mm -hmm. 100 acre land that they wanted to buy. And that was very normal to me. I thought everybody did that. Uh, so investment was already a big thing. My mom w would be involved in a lot of commercial projects. Uh, but then also my older brother, who is significantly older than me, 11 years, he, when he was in college, he started like a grocery delivery service, like years before Instacart was a thing mm. uh, for, for the University of Texas at Austin for students there. I forgot what it was called, but uh, decently successful. And then he went on to do the Silicon Valley thing and started like six or seven businesses, <laughs> one after another, one failed after another, you know, like he started like a couponing service before Groupon was popular. Yep. Uh, he started like a t-shirt sales website and all sorts of things. And now he has uh, a business. He's the CEO of, CEO of a business called DonorBox and they are the donation button on thousands and thousands of nonprofit websites. Uh, they process, I don't know if the number is public, but fair to say millions of dollars of donations for mm. nonprofits every year. But again, the, the word entrepreneurship or that the fact that my brother was an entrepreneur, that wasn't a word in my vocabulary like you, but I saw him doing it. Uh, it's just not a word he, mm. he used very often. Right. And then later on, I started getting into like reading people like Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. Derek Sivers, Naval Ravikant, and this whole crowd of celebrity entrepreneurs sure. that you'll say. And then that made me recognize that streak in my childhood. That made me realize that I'm not the same as all these other musicians who all they want to do is practice all day. Like I have this other streak in me. And mm -hmm. I started to see, really admire what my brother was doing more so than I used to. Now that I was like, wow, I'm family members with the real deal. Somebody who started seven or eight companies at before yeah. the age of 30, like that's a really prime example for me to follow. And, you know, now we're very close talking about all these things and that's how it happened. That's fantastic.
Yeah, so let's talk about your company. Um, it, it really spoke to me. It's called Brave Sound Productions. Yes. And it's a digital music venue. So could you talk about what a digital music venue is? Mm. I picked that wording because I felt like it would be super understandable. Like everybody understands what a music venue is. It is a place that presents music. Uh, and we just choose to do it via live streams. Uh, we don't, well, part of it is we started it at like the peak of COVID. Uh, so that right. wasn't even originally the plan. Uh, the plan was to build a spot to make for me and my friends to make a lot of, present a lot of music in person. But then it evolves and clubs were closing, like the Jazz Standard in New York City just closed. Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. closed. The Blue Whale in L.A. closed. All these beloved venues. And we just found ourselves in a position where we were one of the only people in New York City who were presenting live music. We were doing it digitally, so we do live streams. Uh, we have mm -hmm. we also have a podcast where we interview New York City jazz musicians. But we really try to make it a, a curated communal vibe. Like ev the owner's face... With the owners or co-founders, me and my friend Mike, we write every email newsletter ourselves. Every artist we present is somebody that we have a personal relationship with. All the photos that you see on the website are something that either him or I have taken. Uh, so we're, we're trying to foster a scene, really, is what we're doing. And, and on that, I did read part of the uh, spiel on your website was saying that the, the jazz scene has kind of almost faded away because you know that there's the the video content isn't like other genres where everyone's got professionally shot footage and you know they're, they're doing the online thing whereas jazz musicians have kind of just not really paid attention the gist is and and you know you see crappy shot uh youtube videos of someone's cell phone what my my question is i didn't uh, i don't know if you're familiar with uh, the jazz fusion band marvin I interviewed them um, yeah. a little while ago, and they, they, they were saying basically that the jazz community, from their perspective, was it, it was very curated and it wasn't free to evolve. And they found it very stifling and they couldn't get on shows because they're not strictly jazz, let's say. So do you think the, the, uh, the, yeah. the older jazz community is very elitist in terms of not wanting to go with the times and just wanting to be how it's always been and not get onto the internet properly and get pro shot footage. Is that, is that a fair statement? Mm. I don't know if I would use the word elitist, but they're very protective of who they put on a pedestal. Mm. Like it takes a lot to get a spot at the village Vanguard, let's say, or at smallest jazz club. And the way my understanding of how it happens is they, so it, it is a very, elder revering tradition right sure we value we do value innovation and originality that's definitely core values but really we love our elders charlie parker and dizzy gillespie they revered they revered lester young and coleman hawkins and then sonny rollins and train they revered dizzy gillespie and charlie parker and then so on and so forth so we we have that tradition right so my impression sure. of the way you get selected into be one of these premier uh presenters is you have to be picked by one of these elders to get and they have to see you so i mean i, I know your audience isn't strictly jazz so I, I, it feels weird kind of like dropping these names i know it's, I, I come from a little bit That's of a okay. different community but right now sure. there's a vibraphonist 
well, let me back up. Small, Smalls Jazz Club, the very famous jazz club in New York City, arguably the most famous. And I had the opportunity mm-hmm. to have a, com- a brief conversation with the owner, Spike Wilner. And I, I asked him point blank, like, how do you how do you book this venue? Like, how do you decide who gets the gig and who doesn't? Right. And mm. his response was, like, you have to get picked. And he used as an example this vibraphonist who's very popular right now, Joel Ross. He's um, he's pretty much my age, maybe a couple years older. He's like 24, maybe. <laughs> and he just got signed to mm. Blue Note. He just re- he's released two records that have gotten really criti- great cr- critical acclaim. He's getting all sorts of opportunities. First and foremost, he's a great musician, and that's, that's why. But Spike was saying it does, it's not enough for him to just be a great musician. There's you throw your shoe and you'll hit a great musician in New York city. Right. Right. But what for him was the thing is the elders started picking them. Like Ari Honig would come to smalls and he would hire Joel, you know, and I don't know the other band leaders that would do it, but a lot of older established band leaders were hiring him as a sideman, even though he was mm-hmm. younger. And that is kind of the marker for him of when like a young talent is ready to be brought into the thing. So you could you could say that's very elitist, and I could see how a group like Marvin would never be kind of qualified for those opportunities. And it it is also a reason why innovation uh, can be slower because we're we're we have to fit into what's already happened, and we're we have all these values mm. to do with history and things. But um, sure. I also think that's what's beautiful about the current age is that a band like Marvin can say fuck that and let me let, let me find my own people. And they they don't have to box themselves in, right. so that that's that's awesome too. But yes, there there is some truth to what they're saying. Awesome. To the point is that you you're creating this space for musicians to get well shot photographs and well shot videos and record. Especially in COVID times, you you've I saw your equipment list and you've got a lot of virtual instruments, which is great because you know I I assume in in somewhere like New York, you know it must be an astronomical amount of money to be able to get guitar cabs and bass cabs and you know equipment from a to b and so having all the virtual equipment is pretty uh i mean i we, we've seen the uh like in the guitar space everything's getting smaller and smaller so people can go on a plane with a you know a bag and their guitar case and that's it rather than having to rent you know massive mm-hmm. stacks and stuff so but i really love the the way you've set it up so what other services do you provide you, you've got like the the recording production you got video you got photography what other stuff do you kind of is it is it like a collective or is it more like a standalone business can you elaborate what do you mean by collective so a standalone business in terms of you know just having people that do a certain role like you have an on-staff graphic designer you have an on-staff accountant whatever or is it a based on like a collective where you have people that you know that can you can kind of sub out work too. Ah, like you have a, have a couple of friends that do graphic design, and you can see which one has time, or you know that kind of thing. It's really it's really me and my friend Mike. We're spearheading the whole thing. Now we've branched mm-hmm. out, and we've hired uh, two great individuals who are handling graphic design and social media work for us. But like I said, every photo that you see on the site, pretty much was shot by Mike or I. All the live streams you you see are produced by him and I. We're up early in the morning setting up gear and and uh, doing that. So mm-hmm. the service we do less services and we're mainly we're more focused on uh, finding audiences, right? So because of 
our musical background, we have relationships with lots of amazing musicians mm. because of our technical background. We were able to present them in a higher quality, higher fidelity way than they could on their own with their own. So it's kind of pooled resources in that way. So we're streaming them and we're selling tickets. Uh, I feel very strongly that we shouldn't be giving away live shows. Yeah, I feel very strongly about yeah. that. And so I'm. that's another thing I take a great deal of pride in in my business is I'm paying my, my closest friends real revenue. Uh, and I've provided mm. a, a platform and a container for people to support artists. Yeah, so that, that's that's my value. I'm giving people great art and I'm helping artists that weren't able to package and reach audiences do so. And I think that is ultimately the role of a venue. That, absolutely. That's, that's killer. I was just going to add something about the virtual instruments because jazz musicians, they tend to be very, especially the older ones, they tend to be very closed-minded about the, the virtual stuff. Uh, like my, in, mm. in my own groups, like Mike and I, we, we have this like Roland V drums kit and we've been playing around with Superior Drummer. I forget what, Tune Track, Tune Track, Superior Drummer. And they sound great. And we're making all sorts mm -hmm. of cool music in, in, in an environment where a real drum set just wouldn't make any sense. But if I were to ask most drummers on the scene if they were comfortable doing a sh show on a virtual kit, they would say absolutely not. Guitar players, some of, the, some of them are open to using a virtual amp and like headphone monitoring or things like that. But a lot of them still aren't. They, they, they want a cab there. Uh, I've had pianists that I tried to book. They say like they won't play on anything less than a Steinway Grand, uh, and I say like I <laughs> like no way I'm gonna sell them on like a Native Instruments plugin that sounds beautiful to me. Hmm. Um, and I've spent lots of time selecting the best samples of, but it's just not in the culture. We don't we don't play that. We 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 play in clubs on on Grands on on sure. sets, and we you know. Uh, so I, part of it is also I have to find um, musicians who are will, willing to adapt to this. The setting like really most of the concerts are shot in this room behind me uh, so we have all sorts of interesting constraints but like for example this weekend we're presenting um, a, a young pianist named Sam Taus and he's he's playing on a Nord with all sorts of stuff and he's playing with a bass clarinetist who's running all sorts of electronics and uh, a, a finger a finger drummer who's doing like Ab Ableton drum samples and mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've had uh, the drummer once before and the pianist uh, on a has sidemaned on a couple of shows with that we presented and that's that's a beautiful thing that's going to come out of a lot of re real constraints like <laughs> you know yeah. i don't think a group like that would have happened in in small or something where the vibe is always just a, a piano bass and drums uh but it, I, I think it's equally jazz so I, ju I just wanted to add the possibilities that virtual instruments do create oh yeah absolutely fantastic yeah i mean i have a few uh amp plugins myself and the the only uh drawback i find is is just the there's a little bit of latency from when i strike my strings to when i hear it but i th i honestly i think that's just because i don't have enough memory in my pc yet i need to upgrade a little bit and then i think that'll go away um but mm -hmm. yeah no the possibilities are endless the plugins are getting so good now they sound so amazing yeah, yeah the native agreed. instrument stuff is is really good but yeah, let's let's dig into your past a little bit. What, where, where did you get the bug for music, and and was there like an artist that spoke to you and you said, "Oh, I have to do that." Mm. It was a it was a pretty funny bag. Uh, so my first instrument was guitar. I started playing mm -hmm. guitar like very young, and I had a teacher by the name of Anthony Plant 
who I didn't appreciate fully at the time, of course, as kids don't, but he really did expose me to great shit. Like I, I was transcribing Pat Metheny, oh, wow. Wes Montgomery, Joe Satriani, mm-hmm. Andy Timmons, and yeah, and learning jazz standards, learning like Jack Johnson, all, all, a lot of varied stuff. In fact, I, I remember a great recording that I really loved was George Benson. Uh, playing Breezen, like some of his very soulful, <laughs> fluty mm-hmm. stuff. That was something I really listened to a lot. I would also sight read, like, re- as a reading exercise, I would read through Bach Inventions, and I did end up doing a couple of classical things on, um, on like, nylon string guitar. And again, like, now being an adult and looking back, I see how rare and, and kind of unique that is. Like, most people aren't aren't doing stuff like that, you know? at like before the sixth grade <laughs> but for right. me but for me it was it was the norm I had a teacher who just instilled that in me but eventually the guitar started I still loved music but I I was starting to listen to a lot more of, of I picked up a saxophone in the school band and I was playing mm-hmm. classically but then that caused me to start listening to Count Basie and Marshall Royal Charlie Parker, Coltrane, and then it, it it became clear to me that I would I had much more motivation to practice saxophone than I ever did to practice guitar. Uh, so essentially, I dropped guitar at that time, and I haven't really I've spoken to Anthony Plant only only off and on since then. Hmm. Even though I oh, oh, will always be grateful for being being that initial seed. Yeah, but then from there it, it was history. Like it went so so fast. Like. I, I, I'll, I'll mention that I was, yeah, I, I, w- I was pretty, I, I was pretty new to jazz. I, I was just starting to read out of like a, a Charlie Parker Omni book, just learning to improvise, right? Uh-huh. But then I, I went through the Texas Allstate competition for jazz my freshman year of high school, and they named me first in the state my freshman year. Wow. Off of, off of a fluke, really, I think, right. because I got there and everybody sounded way, way better than me. But that gave me the confidence from being like, hey, I'm just kind of a beginner jazz player. And all of a sudden, my chest was kind of puffing out a little bit. I was like, wow, I'm really good at this jazz thing. I'm like, not just the best in my school, but maybe the best in Texas. Uh, and then I started carrying myself that way. I started booking some gigs. Uh, and I was like still in the ninth grade, stuff I had really had no business playing. And also, of course, people started treating me differently and inviting me to, in, to opportunities that maybe I wasn't so qualified for at the time, right? But it may not have been a good thing for my ego at the time, but it was an amazing thing for my musical growth because it just skyrocketed it from there. Once I started seeing myself as one of the best in my age group, Mm. at my school, in my area, in my state, practice was just non-optional at that point. It's like, this I'm I'm a great saxophone player. This is what I do. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it, it was funny the way it happens, like, I always think about like if that hadn't happened, like would things have turned out the same way? Would I have had the same motivation? But then, yeah, just the educational opportunities I got in high school were just astounding. I I got to study. I took Skype lessons with a a New York City saxophonist named Adam Larson, who's now the the saxophone professor at UMKC, University of Missouri at Kansas City. And Mm -hmm. he was playing with all sorts of guys on the New York City scene. And he kind of exposed me to the standard that was there. And he pushed me to learn all these tunes and improvise at a certain level of fluency. 
And then I did camps like the the Vail Jazz Workshop in Vail, Colorado, where I got to meet Dick Oates, the, the lead alto player for the, the the Village Vanguard Orchestra, John Clayton, Lewis Nash, Wycliffe Gordon was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did Jazz Band of America, uh, where I'm, yeah. And I, I did like the Berkeley, Berkeley College of Music, Newport Jazz Summer Camp, mm-hmm. where I got to study with George Garzone, the great one and only for... 10 days or something. And this is all in high school. Yeah. So the path at that point was set to me. I was working and studying from the best of the best and there was nowhere else to, for me to go. There was no such thing as a normal career from that point. Like once I, once I got the bug, you know, so that, that's awesome. I, I want to touch on one thing you said. It's like, once you got that, call it an ego boost or, you know, confidence, but you said, that's what I do. And I think that's something I pick up from, uh, motivational books all the time is you, you have to switch the language in your head from I want to do this to I do this like you know I, I I want to write a book I'm writing a book now I'm a writer like that language yes. in your head really makes a huge difference but yeah I mean that that's fantastic and it definitely seems like you've got a lot of uh, you just took every opportunity to learn and and just immerse yourself in everything. Yeah, that I, I can't think of a better way to learn than just like ba- basically putting yourself in the fire if you're jumping on stage in, in high school. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous almost yeah. if you think about it. Because, you, you, I mean, not to say that you couldn't come, come into uh, uh, some sticky situations in Deep Elm, but, um, you know. I did, yeah, for sure. But just just the fact that you're so young and and putting yourself out there is is really great. But, I mean, just one thing I wanted to ask is, do you have any musical members of your family? Like, was music something people did at home, or like what caused you to want to do guitar lessons in the first place? Ah, uh, okay. So I, I had an uncle who was a rock star. <laughs> I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't. His he he was part of a, a like a metal band called DC Strut, and his wife was the lead singer they they were like 30 years out of their prime by the time i came in into Hmm. life so i wouldn't say that was something i had in my ear all the time though that was a possibility well let me just mention a quick personal thing my biological parents divorced when i was very young i was born to two chinese immigrants and if that had played out no way in hell i would be a jazz saxophone in harlem just Mm. just being frank with you right uh so mom and dad divorced and i started living with my mom who married my stepfather who raised me right and my step stepfather was from upstate new york his his brother was the rock star i was was the former rock star and uh he was also my stepdad who was probably the reason i do music uh, was not Mm. is not a musician uh, he did play saxophone like a little bit back in high school, that type of thing. Uh, but I do remember music was always on in the house at that time. Uh, it didn't end up being the music that I ended up playing, but it was the Beatles, the Beach Boys, James Taylor, Bruce Springsteen, Earth, Wind & Fire. It was good influences to be had, mm-hmm. absolutely, for sure. And hmm. so guitar... I don't, I did, had no, absolutely no interest in anything like violin 
or like classical piano like that just didn't and guitar felt cool to me I guess you know I bought a Strat and I was like in third grade playing a Strat like I thought it was something <laughs> and I, I would say it's probably a similar motivate well actually the saxophone was kind of picked for me by my dad my stepdad who uh, just brought home a saxophone one day and was like you're gonna play this thing and yeah that happened so th- there was a good deal of support but no no like real professional musicians in the family okay cool i like to uh go into my non-quick fire question round um, so what is one piece of advice you you would give a musician looking to make a living from music? Mm. Become a production company. Find the absolute lowest cost way to present your music in a high quality format and cost in terms, both in monetary terms and in time terms. Mm. Cool. Uh, what one resource, be it a book, podcast, blog, would you recommend to artists looking to be successful? Your Music and People by Derek Sivers. Awesome. I have to look that one up. What significant negative experience has, uh, have you overcome and what did that teach you? Mm. <laughs> well, I remember freshman year of college, I was very, very much so in a say yes to everything mode. Uh, I was taught that that's the way to be once you move to New York City, but I overdid it. I had a gig with Terry Lynn Carrington. I was playing the Jazz at Lincoln Center um, Dizzy's Late Night set for the whole week with the Nate Sparks Big Band. I was doing this performance um, in this kind of youth group with Maria Schneider. Like I forgot the venue. It was somewhere in Midtown. Uh, and I was playing a wedding in Pennsylvania, all within like a like a five wow. day span. Uh, in fact, the the t- day I had to go to the wedding in Pennsylvania, I I like rented a car and I drove myself to Allentown. I think it was Allen or Allenstown, and I played this wedding. And then I the wedding finished at nine, and I had a downbeat at Dizzy's in New York City at midnight. Um, so I, I, I tailed it from Pennsylvania back to New York city to make this gig. And then I had a rehearsal for new, for Maria Schneider for that concert, like in the morning after the Dizzy's late night set. And then like the day after was the Terry Lynn Carrington gig with a sound check in the morning or something like that. Uh, and long story short, I folded on all of them, <laughs> did not do a good job. I, I lost the big band gig. Terry Lynn Carrington who was like an idol of mine. Wasn't really happy with with the way the horns were playing i missed i missed the rehearsal with marie schneider i didn't miss it i showed up like an hour late mm-hmm. obviously i overslept after driving from pennsylvania and playing the dizzy's late night set until 4 a.m <laughs> like hell i was gonna make a, a 10 a.m rehearsal uh thought i could right. yeah long story short it, it all fell to pieces and don't bite off more than you can chew <laughs> it was the lesson <laughs> that's good advice yeah you just end up having a breakdown or you know it's not good for your health no but yeah no great 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 piece of advice there um what major positive experience has given you the push to uh, follow this journey Mm. wow ah uh so the director of the previous director of the jazz program at manhattan school music is an incredible vibraphonist by the name of stefan harris uh and he he is one of the, if not the most influential figure in my life, probably. 
and it's the way he thinks about music, the way he thinks about life, the way he thinks about harmony, communicating with sound, having empathy with your band members, with your audiences, all these different ideas. And I had this one summer where I don't know why, but he got the idea that I was more, I was very into his, his thoughts, I guess. <laughs> so I became the person that he would call at any time to bounce ideas off of. Uh, for like a whole summer and he would we, we would talk about chords and like chord extensions we talk about life or whatever uh it, it was it was I was just like his guy for bouncing ideas off of and I remember I would drop whatever I was doing to take those calls like I, I remember like walking down 145th in Harlem and I, I get one of these calls and so I, I, I just stop and I sit on the staircase and I have this conversation, but the whole time, like I had to, I had to pee really bad or something like <laughs> something like that, but I didn't want to miss a word of what he was saying. So I was just kind of like pacing around this block, just trying to be intensely focused on like these words of wisdom while uh, doing these things. And then I also remember he, he, he said, he said one time, one time he called me at like eight in the morning. <laughs> and I, I just happened to be awake that day, but usually I was not. Uh, and he said he said something to the effect of like, "Is this a good time to call you? This is like my morning commute to work. I think this is a good, 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 good time for me to talk, right?" And so from then on, every day that summer, whether I was expecting a call or not, like my alarm was set at seven thirty uh, to make sure if if he decided to call me that day and and give me something like I was prepared for. <laughs> so that was. <laughs> That was a few months uh, where I just learned so much from Stefan Harris, and I'm very appreciative of it. That's awesome. So last question is, what does music mean to you? Mm. Music is the most primal form of communication I believe that humans have. Fantastic. Where can people find out about you, Brave Sound Productions, uh, get in touch? Yes, my website is austinzang.org. You can find my email there. On Instagram, my handle is at austindiscovers. My business, Brave Sound Productions, is at bravesound.org. And on Instagram, we are at bravesoundnyc. Fantastic. Um, at the end of the uh, episode, I like to play a piece of music from the artist I'm, I'm talking to. So what, which uh, piece of music would you like to play? I sent you a couple of files, I think, right? You did. I don't remember which ones I sent. <laughs> I think the one that stood out to me was, uh, uh, is it Sound of Healing? Song for Healing, yeah. Song for Healing. That's a good one. Sure. Yeah, that I, that, I listened to that. I like that quite a lot. So Appreciate it. All right. Um, is there any backstory behind that? Song or for any Healing? interesting st stories about recording it? Mm, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let the music speak for itself, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> okay. That's fair. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Um, yeah, I really like what you're doing in the in the uh, you know supporting artists and getting their their music out there. So continued success, and um, you know we'll stay in touch. Yeah, I would love to stay in touch, Simon. I appreciate you giving me the chance to speak. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform as this really helps get the word out about the podcast so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing.
The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items, such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service, including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store, so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Austin Zhang with Song for Healing.